Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I have... uh... I started at the early part of this year a sermon series that I put off for nearly two decades on the Sermon on the Mount. Because on on the face of it, the Sermon on the Mount is a very easy, simple sermon. And I longed to preach it, but then the more I learned about it, the more it terrified me how easy it is to get this sermon wrong and turn it into the exact opposite of what Jesus intended to say. And I grew up hearing the Sermon on the Mount preached, and I think what I heard in the way it was presented so often gave me a distorted picture of the kingdom of God as Jesus is trying to describe it. And so I hope that over the course of the last 20-some years that I've been at this and God has been shaping my heart around the gospel of Jesus, that I'm prepared to honor the spirit of what Jesus wanted to say through this great sermon. There have been a lot of other things that have come up, a lot of other people who have wonderfully taken this pulpit, and I have not preached on this series since before Easter of this year. So this morning, I'm picking it up again, and it will take us through the fall. All right? And so this morning, we're going to resume with Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 25. And I thought about six different titles for this sermon until I finally landed on this one, Making Peace, Making Peace. And I want to read the passage with you and look at what it says. We're going to look at the NIV translation of this, and here's the word of God. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. First, you would not consider this a feel-good passage of Scripture because... Right off the bat, he starts with a, a topic that isn't really something we all like to hear about, but that's murder. And Jesus says very simply something that seems to me like a non-starter, like a no-brainer. He says, you've heard it said before to the people long ago, in other words, for as long as you can remember, this has been the moral standard under which you were governed. That you shall not murder, in other words, you shall not unlawfully take the life of another in anger or hostility or hatred. And if you do it, you will be subject to judgment. 
Now, I would, say, I would argue that every sane individual in society in all of human history agreed with this statement, and Jesus is certainly upholding it. I, I think only a psychopath would say murder is a morally good thing, and we ought to encourage it. Murder is horrible. And it is one of the most um, offensive acts before God because it takes into your own hands power that only should belong to God, the power over life and death. It is a way of saying to another person, I extinguish you. And that's not something we have the right to do. And if we do it, rightly we should stand under the harshest judgment and face the most severe penalty. The problem with this passage is that so few people over human history have committed murder that just like Jesus' original audience, I think a lot of people are like, oh good, I'll just wait till he talks about something that relates to me. Can I just, maybe this is dangerous, maybe I don't want to know this. Raise your hand if you've murdered someone. Wow, okay. Someone in the back raised their hand. That scares me. I, I actually asked a friend of mine who used to, he's a pastor now, but he was a gangbanger for years and years in his youth. And I said, hey, I'm just joking around. I go, hey, bro, did you ever kill anyone? And he says, he got really serious. He said, I don't know. I've stabbed so many people and run. I'm not sure if any of them died. So I, I've learned my lesson not to ask frivolously if you've murdered anyone, but because so few of us have murdered, it's easy, just like Jesus' original audience, to think, this doesn't have anything to do with me now. But then Jesus does something shocking, and he radically stretches the definition of murder. He says, well, I know most of you haven't murdered anyone, but I want you to know that if you've ever nurtured an anger towards a brother or sister, or spoken to them in disdain, or disrespect, or hatred, or bigotry, you are guilty as if you had murdered that person with your heart. Cue the sound of screeching tires. I mean, at this point, I'm surprised the Sermon on the Mount wasn't aborted at that very moment. Because what Jesus said, I, I picture all these people starting to shuffle out of the crowd, you know, um, Pastors, we have this saying called uh, crowd reduction sermons, where you say something so radical, so crazy, people start going, this dude's a lunatic. I, I picked the wrong church. And people start walking out on you. And that's the kind of moment I think Jesus should have had here. Because what he said was, everyone knows murder's wrong, but if you've ever hated anyone, if you've ever spoken words of disdain and disrespect or bigotry or hatred, you are also guilty of murder. Just like the fullness of a mighty oak tree resides in a small acorn, the most morally reprehensible, worst things we could ever do exist in seed form in our hearts and what we might think of now as just harmless attitudes. And I think most people would say, "How can, it's unreasonable to somehow link hatred to murder. Anger to murder, or at the very least, it's ridiculous to say that if I call someone a fool, it's the same as killing them. And what Jesus says is, that is how it begins. The seed of murder begins with the same attitudes that I'm condemning now. I love the way Tim Keller said it. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, or soon-to-be former pastor, I think, of Redeemer, he said, 
that the only, what Jesus is essentially saying is the only difference between me and the most heinous murderer is the difference of quantity and not quality. That whereas that person has killed and maybe killed many in the flesh, I have killed and have killed many in my heart. And that the real difference between me and that person is not that he is radically different from me, but that they have just more of the sickness that has already corrupted and disqualified me. So Jesus breaks down for us three hard attitudes that really lead to the same essence and spirit that drives murder. The first of those is anger. And I'm not going to turn each one of these things into a separate point. I don't want to belabor them or make too much of the differences. But I think there are nuanced differences. And the kind of anger he's talking about is the kind of anger that keeps swelling and flaring. The kind of anger that even when you try to be a a grown-up and say, you know, this is ridiculous. Life's too short to be this angry. I got to try to make amends. And you go to that person, you try really hard. You know, like when you're really mad at someone, the kind where you see red and you just profanity starts coming up in your spirit and you can't control it. Have you ever been that? Am I the only one? Have you ever been that? Raise your hand, please. Just help me not to feel so disgusting. Have you ever felt so angry at someone that you just, you wanted bad things to happen. There's a woman in, who lives in the subdivision across the street from ours, and she jogs early in the morning, and we have caught her in the act. She has this large Rottweiler she jogs with, and that Rottweiler drops massive droppings, and at least half the time she leaves those droppings on our lawn. I don't know why on our route, on her route, our house is where this dog suddenly has the urge of the bowels. But half the time, she actually puts it in a bag and then leaves the bag on our lawn. Like a Christmas present. The worst kind of present. And just the other day, I woke up unusually early and I saw her jogging. I was tempted to stalk her in my car to see where she lives so I could leave her a gift in exchange. But I remember at that moment, the Lord just pierced me because in my mind, I caught myself going, I wouldn't be so sad if she sprained her ankle jogging. Now, I know that makes me seem so much morally worse than you, (laughs) liars, but the truth is, I was like, it wouldn't be the end of the world if this woman sprained her ankle and couldn't run with that poopy dog, and he pooped in her yard for a change. And I realized that there's this, every time I think about her in that situation, every time I see that Walmart, that gray Walmart bag of poop on my lawn, my blood rises, and it's hard for me to feel anything but disdain for this woman. I mean, how selfish an act is this? And we try to be the grown-up. We try even to approach. And Jeannie actually approaches this woman and says, can you stop doing that? And she says, oh, I intend to go back and pick it up. I just don't want to jog with poop in my hand. I'll come back. And she never comes back. And we tried the reasonable way. We're going to flame her on Facebook. (laughs) You know what, though? We've tried, and still it's difficult to suppress it. And so if we take this attitude of anger and break it down to the, into today's vernacular, it might be something like, I can't even. I'm trying to can and I can't even. Did you ever see that Saturday Night Live skit? It's hilarious. I'm trying to can and I can't even. It's this anger that leads to just quitting. I'm not even, I'm done. I've tried to patch things up. I've tried to be the bigger person, but I can't get past what they've done. 
I can't change the way I instinctively feel about them. I don't trust them. I don't feel safe. I don't like them. If we're really honest, that's what it boils. I just don't like you. I'm not going to moralize and find some noble reason why. I just don't like you anymore. I don't want to spend time with you. I don't want to be around you. I've tried to change the way I feel about you, but I can't even. I'm trying to use the modern language so that everyone in the room kind of captures the essence of what this is. There's also another attitude that he says, if you call someone Raka, do you even know what that means? So most of us have not, we're innocent of this. We haven't called anyone Raka, but that word literally translated means empty. And while most people have understood this to mean an empty head, like you're making a a statement about someone's intelligence, the truth of the matter is it's really more about the emptiness of a person's worth. It is a word of diminishment, of belittling. It's a way of saying you're worthless. You're trash. You are a non-person. You don't matter at all. Think about how many modern insults today carry that flavor of trying to say to a person, you are nothing. In today's language, it might be, you ain't poop. I really struggled with whether to include this slide because I was so worried I would have a Freudian slip and actually say the word from the pulpit. And now I just put that word in all of your brains, so I apologize for that. But you know what it's saying. And it perfectly captures the modern spirit that we're trying to communicate. You ain't nothing. You are worthless. You are like used food that we deposit on people's lawns. You have no value. In fact, the reason I can expel you from my life is that your disdain for me, your loneliness for me, your anger with me doesn't even bother me anymore. You are, bye, you're gone. You could be gone from me, and my life doesn't skip a beat. I just keep going because you ain't poop. Have you ever felt that towards someone? Or is Noah the only one? I want to say me, but I can't be the bad guy the whole sermon. And we're making light of this, but this is serious stuff. I'm trying to capture it in today's speech. But really, this is stuff that breaks the heart of God. And then he says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, you fool, that's based on a Greek word everyone knows. It's the Greek word moros, from which, what, which English word do you think we get from moros? You moron! That is a statement about a person's intellect. It's a way of saying, you are so dumb It's hard to be mad at you. I actually pity you now because to be that dumb is its own punishment. You are so dumb that it engenders compassion rather than anger. There's a saying we have in English called beneath contempt, where there's contempt, which is hatred of someone, and beneath, which is of so little value, you have to move up in the world for me to actually have contempt for you. For me to hate you, you got to graduate from a little more school because you're too dumb even to waste hatred on. That's strong. Said in today's vernacular, you stupid. And if I understand this correctly, stupid with double O is you're so stupid, I won't even bother spelling it right. You're just that, it's like a way of augmenting stupid. You're stupid. You're stupid. It's a way of saying to someone, I'm not even going to waste it. I don't know why you act the way you do, why you do this. And I've heard this a lot. They're just crazy. I, I don't have time in this life for crazy people. 
I don't know why they're like that. And we assume everybody else is just crazy, whereas we're just in pain. <laughs> we're just having a bad day. We're struggling. Our craziness is always excusable. Everyone else's craziness. Why am I such a magnet for crazy people? It's this way of diminishing another person to say, you know, I don't know why, but it's at this point, I don't need the drama in my life. It's better for me to eject you and just move on because it's not worth the energy to repair this. If I try to repair it, I don't even want the repaired relationship. You're not the kind of person I want to have a relationship with. Now, we've all been at each one of these places, haven't we? It's not other people who go through these emotional things. I've been there. I know you've been there. Where you have an anger with a person that just, no matter what you try, you can't change the way you feel about them. I know you felt about someone that they're so beneath you, so not worthy. You just want to say, you ain't nothing. You're trash. Just leave. I don't want you around. We certainly said to someone, you're beneath contempt. I don't even care enough about you to spare a little contempt in your direction. What Jesus is saying is the reason that these things are tied to murder is that when we say to a person, you're dead, that begins with the ability to say to a person, you're dead to me. You don't matter anymore. You can't even bother me. In fact, marital counselors say that the beginning of the end for a marriage is when the person can't even get you angry anymore. You're like, I used to get upset about you, but now, whatever. I'm not even mad anymore. I just want you out. It's that level of disdain and apathy and disconnection that ultimately leads to the capacity to extinguish another life because you cannot extinguish a life if you see that life. If you see them as a valued human being, infinitely of worth to God in his eyes, made in God's image, beloved of him, held in the heart of Jesus while he hung on a cross, if you see that life, it's impossible to extinguish it unless you are clinically psychopathic. And so before you extinguish a life, literally, you have to cultivate the ability to extinguish a life virtually. To say in your spirit to another person, I don't care if you live or die, just be gone. I won't eject you from the planet, but I'm going to eject you from my life. It's not necessary for me to have any part with you any longer. And I want you to notice something. That twice in this passage, Jesus says, it's not just to the world in general he's primarily applying this. But in the book of Matthew, every time he refers to brother or sister, it's always in reference to a fellow believer. Someone bound by the same faith as us. What he says is before we can even learn to love and reconcile and interact differently with everyone, we have to begin at the very least in the family of God because the kind of division and anger and hatred and disdain that lead to murder exists not only in the world out there, but in the church, in the family of God in here. So it matters so much to God that Jesus says something just as radical when he says, if you find that you're at church worshiping, and this is very likely he has in mind the Day of Atonement when people would bring an animal of great financial value and they would bring it to the priest and because they could not go into that place, 
They would give, the, they would pray, they would land, lay, lay their hands on the animal to confer their guilt to the animal, and then the priest would take the gift, and they would bring the animal in, and they would slaughter it on the altar, and the person, their sins would be atoned for. And so that's likely what he has in mind is as you're leading this animal wanting to get in good standing with God, saying to God, I messed up, I know what I've done, I want to be right with you. And as we're in the act of trying to restore our vertical relationship, Jesus says to us, if you find you're doing that, and then you remember that someone's got a problem with you, you remember that you've done something and it's broken the relationship between you and another person, Drop the animal, walk away, don't even finish the process. Because God is not interested in the ongoing continuation of a vertical act of worship if you will continue to nurture that brokenness in the horizontal relationship. Meaning, this is so important to God, and this is not me saying it, it's not some stretch of interpretation. Jesus himself is saying to us, if you are okay living with broken relationships with your fellow Christians, if you found a space in your heart to be okay with that and move on, it stands as a barrier between you and God in your vertical worship of him. This is not God being petty. It's not God saying, if you don't get along with your brothers, don't even try to come to me. It's not, it's not him being impetuous and petty. It's him saying, you, if you cannot love your fellow brother or sister, it reveals that you don't understand how you and I are able to love each other. Because the same grace that makes a relationship with God possible makes relationships with one another possible. We cannot take advantage of, avail ourselves of this vertical grace and then cut off the horizontal grace. Read through the New Testament with your eyes open and what you'll discover is this theme is repeated numerous times. That God is not interested in just repairing our vertical relationship while we shatter our horizontal ones or do like the world and just hang out with the people we like and love. There is a reparative power in the gospel that allows us against all odds to have reconciled relationships with fellow human beings against every expectation and pattern of the world. That's the power of the gospel experienced in human society is that the same grace, the same gospel that repaired our relationship with God makes possible the repair of our relationship with each other. And I know that the world's thinking has seeped very deeply into the heart and spirit of the church where we're okay with understanding some of the world's rules like, you know, three strikes, you're out. I don't have to be stupid about this. How many times am I going to put up with you How many times do I have to go to this painful place with you? I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I'm done. Jesus says, that heart of quitting breaks the heart of God. Because think about it this way. Where would we be if God had said the same thing to us? Are we really suggesting that we have never put God in that position to say, again, that makes only the 895th time this month you've repented about pornography. That only makes the fifth time this morning that you've repented for being angry and hateful towards your fellow man. That only makes the 50th time this month that you've envied somebody else's wife or husband 
or child or possession. I mean, haven't we been there too where we, we put this in front of God and say, oh, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but I'm there again, Lord. I'm there again. And what if in that moment the Lord had said to us, I hear you, but what you've done is messed up. Okay, I'm not going to throw flaming darts at you anymore. I'm not going to strike you with lightning, but I'm done with you. I'm not interested in a relationship with you anymore. You can do whatever you want. Just don't do it with me. Do it on your own. Can you imagine where we would stand today if the heart of God had said those same things to us? But that's not what God said to us. He said something very different. Now, we shouldn't make too much of the fact that Jesus says, if you're worshiping and you remember someone else has a problem with you, what am I supposed to do about that? I mean, it's not my fault they have a problem with me. But what he's trying to say, and he says it elsewhere in a different way, like in Matthew 18, he says, whether you're the one who has to apologize or whether you're the one who has to forgive, the priority is not on who has to come groveling and begging for forgiveness. The priority is if it ever comes to your mind if the Holy Spirit ever reminds you that you don't have a good standing with someone in the church, that there's bad blood, a problem between us, that's not something we can just leave alone and continue blithely worshiping God. He says that right there is something that needs attention. And it doesn't matter which position, which side of that equation you're on, whether you're the one who has to repent or you're the one who has to forgive, reconciliation must be the priority of those who have found new life in Christ Jesus. Paul said at the end of Romans a different way. He said, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, in other words, you don't have full control over whether things reconcile or not, but we are called to do everything in our human power to pursue reconciliation with people that we have broken relationships with. Here's how Paul said it later in 2 Corinthians 5. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here's what that means primarily. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. How? By not counting their sins against them. I know that's very churchy language, but pause and let that stick like a chicken bone in your throat. Listen to that. That the way God reconciles people to himself is he has to suppress his gag reflex and not count their sins against them. He says, I see you and I see your sin, but if I'm going to have a relationship with you, I have to see the righteousness of my son and see past your sins to see you. I see who I can make you, God says. I see what you are if my son stands in front of you. I choose not to see who you are when you do what you want to do to me. And then he entrusts to us the message and ministry of reconciliation. Of course, that primarily means we are to call people to reconcile with God, but people cannot receive a gospel of reconciliation from a fractured church. I don't want to hear an out-of-shape personal trainer yelling at me to give him five more push-ups. I'm like, why don't you do five push-ups? You look like you could use a few. Don't yell at me. I don't want to be sold a Honda from a guy who drives a Toyota to work. 
I don't want health advice from a doctor who smokes. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are charged with the ministry of reconciliation, meaning we are calling people on God's behalf to be reconciled to God. But can they hear that message from a church that is fractured because we cannot overcome our hurts through the power of that same gospel? As the fastest way to nullify the impact and influence of the church in our world. And the fastest way to accelerate our impact is to show the world a different picture of what is possible in human relationships when the power of the gospel steps into that equation. See, Jesus' standard for life together in community is not just difficult. It is impossible apart from the gospel. I don't know about you, but if I stop this message here, this would be the most depressing sermon I've ever preached at Harvest. If you've ever hated someone, if you ever talked down to someone, if you've ever shut someone out of your life, you're a murderer. Bye, and drop the mic and just leave. Guilty. What kind of message would that be? But here's the good news. It is not just difficult. It's impossible to live by this standard of human interaction. We cannot relate to people this way on our own. But if we truly understand what Jesus has made possible for us through the gospel, if we never take for granted that I can have a relationship with God, and some people have journeyed through life in a way where they're every day grateful for it because they knew, they still remember how far from God they were, how unlovable they once were, how damaged and broken and damaging to others that they were. And the fact that they can have a relationship with God still strikes awe in their spirit. That's the gospel truth. That I don't, I'm not entitled to a relationship with God, but the fact that I get to have one is a miracle. And it's made possible only because Jesus has covered everything I've ever done. And he took care of that for me. And that makes possible a relationship with God. And when we really understand that, it makes possible reconciliation between us and other people. And that's why he says, if you're angry or if you shout insults at people, you are in peril of the fires of hell. Because he's saying that when you talk that way about another person, when your attitude is that objectifying and depersonalizing of another person, it doesn't say so much about how hard they are to love, but how little we have grasped the love of God for us. Do you understand that? It's not news that there are unlovable people out there. Our president is fast becoming one of those people. I'm, I can't read his Twitter feed anymore. I don't know what he's doing. Never mind his politics, just his maturity as a person. It's hard to like the guy right now. And I wish he would be different. And that's nothing. There are people closer to our lives who are really annoying. They're like pebbles stuck in our shoe. I would love to be free of you. Or that slice of apple peel stuck in your tooth for the whole work thing. And you just can't get out. You're like, when will I be free of this person? Just please go. And when we say that about this person, you don't know them. There are extenuating circumstances. Yes, Pastor Dave, I heard you. Be reconciled. I can do that with most people, just not with this one chosen relationship, which I just accepted that I'm okay without it. I'm moving on. 
please don't push me on this. I won't push you. It's not my job to push you on that. But I think Jesus is saying something to our hearts to say. What he's saying to us is, when we say about another person, you just don't know. It's impossible to reconcile with them. I can't love them anymore. I'm sorry. I can't want a relationship with them. That's not saying so much about that person. It's saying something about how we understand the love of God for us. Because wrapped up in that statement is this idea, this implicit idea that the reason God likes me is because I'm one of the good guys. I don't do to God what that person's done to me. I don't offend God the way this person has offended me. Don't be so sure. Because a grasp of the gospel's power is a grasp of the deep, deep, miraculous, impossible love of God for each of us. I mean, what can you possibly say about that other person that we can't actually say about ourselves and our standing before God when he first extended an invitation to us? I've told you many times from this pulpit, if you'd met me at the age of 17, we would not be friends. You would not like me. I would want to be your friend. You would not have wanted to be my friend. At age 17, I was everything you don't like about boys. I was all of those things. I was shallow, arrogant, self-centered, superficial. When I look back at old me, I don't even like me. My kids laugh all the time as I share with them stories. They're like, I can't believe you're a pastor. It just really lowers the bar on what a pastor can be that you got to be one. That's how I remember what a miracle the gospel is. Like Paul said again in 2 Corinthians 5, because of that, he is compelled, we are compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. And we can no longer look at people from a human point of view. That's exactly the words he said. I can no longer regard others from a human perspective because I now always see in light of how God finally started a relationship with me. The greatest proof of the gospel's power is not just changed lives, but changed relationships. Because Christianity is not just a self-improvement program. It is a whole new people arising out of a broken world. It's a new family, a new community, a new way of relating to others because of the way we have discovered how to relate to God. And because of the gospel... The greatest proof of the gospel is healed relationships. Some of us are living today with broken relationships. And we've learned to be okay with that. Now, I'm not suggesting you can fix every broken relationship by applying effort to it. But as far as it depends on you, make every effort to live at peace with everyone. Don't write off any relationship, especially those with your fellow Christian, as something you can safely discard and move on from. Because the minute you make that decision, a barrier comes up in your vertical relationship with God. Because the same grace that has failed there is going to fail here. And sooner or later, you're going to start operating with God on the basis of your performance 
rather than his mercy. I want to bring the message to a close by one of the first working titles for this message is Bearing the Hatchet. And that has its roots in this beautiful ceremony among Native Americans on the East Coast, the Mohawk, the Iroquois, some others, who had the ceremony that when they were in hostility with one another and decided, enough of the fighting, let's make peace with each other, the chiefs of the two tribes would come together and they would take their prized war hatchet, the one that's very expensive, it's not for fighting, it's for displaying, and they would take it, they would bury it in the ground as far down as they could dig and say, with this symbolic gesture, we put aside our hostilities. We're done fighting. You're not my enemy anymore. At the very least, that's what we should do with one another. We should bury the hatchet. But here's why I didn't go with that title, because I don't think the heart of God is simply for us to stop fighting and bury the hatchet. I think without Christ, people can do that. They do it every day. They say, you know what? Let's just agree to disagree. You go east, I'll go west. I'm not going to, don't, you don't have to stay awake at night with one eye open, wondering when I'm going to kill you. We're just done with each other. And people without Christ do that every day in this world. They just cut the cord and say, goodbye. The heart of Jesus is very different. His gold standard is not simply the ceasing of hostility, but it is love. Not just invisible love somewhere deep down in here, but love that others receive. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You don't need Jesus to stop fighting. But this kind of love is not possible without Jesus. It's impossible. And so when we can love the person who was once my enemy, that is the greatest proof of the gospel I can think of to show a watching world. Because of what Jesus did, out of the ashes of conflict can rise a renewed friendship. And I know that somewhere in your mind you've been wrestling as you heard this and you still can't even. You're trying. Don't look inward. Look up. The only way you're going to move forward in reconciliation is by fixing your eyes on what Jesus has done for you. And I don't mean that in some generic churchy way. I mean, really think about it. Why should God hear a single prayer we offer? Why should he know our names or care whether we live or die? He does it because Jesus opened the way for us to have a relationship with him. Apart from that, I couldn't know God. And he could not have the kind of relationship with me that he wants. Because of Jesus, it's possible. And if I trust that between me and God, I have to also trust that that same power can heal the relationships that are broken in my life with others. 
the end of this passage, Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. And I say that now to you. That if during the course of this message, a relationship that is just broken is churning about in your heart, don't hope that in, a, in three days from now, the force of the message or the work of God will just settle out and fade. Make a decision right now to do something that will move that relationship towards reconciliation. Make a decision that today you will write a letter, make a phone call, do anything that says, I am not okay living in brokenness with someone that God loves. I don't care how many ways the world has given me to be okay with it. God's heart is not okay with it, and I don't want to be okay with it anymore. And I believe what the Lord wants to say to each of us is in this very place where we worship Him, pause and think about your standing with others. And if there is brokenness, seek the Lord's power and do everything in your power to reconcile. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.